Hello, and welcome everyone to episode three of The Flight Stuff. I'm Liam O'Donnell, editor-in-chief of Cinepunks.com. I'm Adriana Gober, managing editor of Cinepunks.com. And I'm Doug Tilly, writer, podcaster, and general gadabout. Gad, gadabout? Is that, what, what is a gadabout, Doug? I don't need to have this conversation with you. Oh, God. It's just the introduction. Let's, let's focus on the Alpha Flight today, at least. Hey, on this uh, special third episode, we will be talking about uh, Alpha Flight issues six, seven, and eight. We're really getting into the into the meat of it here. We're full <laughs> eight. It. Before you know it, we'll be in double digits, and then we'll know that this is real, that it's real. Uh, I am excited I think there's some interesting things to dive into here. Uh, so I kind of want to just get started right away. You guys ready to get started? Actually, I just want to say one thing. Do I, it. I yes. know that yeah, it's just that like I read a, a, a decent amount of modern comics, but I have to say I'm sometimes thrown with the pacing of comics from this time period because you know i think we're very much used to kind of the compressed storytelling where almost nothing happens in maybe even uh, multiple issues of a comic here they're telling stories sometimes and even though you know they're, they they might be broken up over issues the ones that we're going to be talking about today sometimes they're telling like almost a full story in like 15 pages there's just a lot that they're getting through very quickly um and i feel it's almost i almost feel like i have whiplash after reading some of these comic books well, I think we'll all have something to say about the pacing and the events of these three issues. I think they're three issues that, you know, a lot going on in 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 a not a lot of room here. But I guess you know, John Burns trying to he's trying to get a franchise off the ground. It's not exactly a, an easy thing to do. So why don't we get started here with this uh, this first one we're taking a look at, Alpha Flight, Volume One, Number Six, January nineteen eighty four, written, drawn, and cover by John Byrne. So after being chewed out by Chief Inspector Hamilton for her various absences, uh, Anne McKenzie, uh, a.k.a. Snowbird, is confined to a prison cell while her RCMP pal Doug, which is my name, uh, does an investigation on it. Um, I'm pretty sure that's against Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but uh, she is held in a prison cell. Uh, and nearby oil drilling team accidentally unleashes the ancient beast Kalamok. So uh, Mackenzie changes into her snowbird form to battle the massive creature in a giant snowstorm. Cue, really, a lot of white space. And we're going to be talking about this, I'm sure, in some detail and some really interesting panel layouts. Uh, despite changing her form multiple times, Snowbird is seriously wounded until she uses her cunning to trick Kalamok into uh, bringing an avalanche upon himself. Uh, we also all have a very brief segment where Guardian is uh, has an inner monologue where he's starting to enjoy being a superhero. He stops at his house and he sees that he's received a letter from the Roxxon Corporation, which, I, uh, if I remember correctly, is a oil company like Exxon. Uh, I'll have stuff to say about that. But Great. <laughs> uh, there's also a backup story. We'll get to that in a second. I, mm -hmm. I want to focus on this main thing here. And, you know, as we've sort of set up as our pattern, you know, we start off talking about the art. And I think um, for this issue, there's a lot to say about the yeah. quote unquote art of the issue. Uh, Adriana, what, what did you think about this? Before we really delve into the specifics of this issue, I think the circumstances of its publication are really worth pointing out. Sure. So in January of 1984, Marvel ran a fun little event called Assistant Editors Month. And the premise was basically that all of the regular editors at Marvel were busy with Comic-Con shenanigans, so the assistant editors were left with full reign over what got published that month. And of course, that wasn't really the case. 
it, it was all in jest, but it was basically an opportunity for Marvel to try out something different and get a little weird. So many of the comics published that month were kind of offbeat and outside the realm of what was typically published. Um, and a very notable example is Avengers number 239, which found the event, the Avengers appearing as guests on Letterman. So that gives you a sense of the sort of content uh, they were publishing for this event. So Snowblind was another issue to emerge out of Assistant Editors Month, and that tends to color how certain people perceive it. Opinions on Snowblind tend to fall within one of two camps. It's either a bold, boundary-pushing issue that challenges notions of what a comic book should be and what it could look like, or it's a ridiculous gimmick and John Byrne just took advantage of the relaxed editorial policy <laughs> that month so he didn't need to put in the usual amount of effort. Um, because remember, he was working on Fantastic Four at the time, as well as the Th- a Thing solo series, and was just generally working a lot. So this was seen by some as a way for him to cut corners. I'll reveal where I stand on the issue a little later. Maybe we should just elaborate slightly on, uh, I think, you know, I, I refer to it in the plot summary, but there is a large section of this issue where there is a fight between Snowbird and this creature, and because it's it happens during um, a snowstorm, it's just white panels with speech balloons and sound effect uh, kind of uh, inserts in it. But aside from different panel shapes, it's all just blank white. There's no actual art in there. I mean, let me uh, reiterate that, or, or let me rephrase, I should say. There's nothing penciled in there. Um, it's just white space. Well, there's the lettering, which I think is a very crucial element to this issue. Absolutely. And, well, <laughs> very essential in this particular case, or they would be truly blank pages. But I can see why there would be some controversy around it. I will – I should st- – I'm just going to say it up front, even though we'll get, back, we'll get back to it, I'm sure, soon. There was a part of me that was thinking, oh, John Byrne, you lazy bastard, <laughs> while I was watching it. But it also is brave. I mean, this is a, a property that obviously he is emotionally – attached to and that his name is all over and it's not like he's known as this late whatever you can say about john byrne lazy usually isn't the word that there he was working on multiple books at the same time this does seem like it leans heavier on artistic experiment more than laziness here's my thing the art leading up to the gimmick is also not my favorite art in fact until the reveal of colomac 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 to the reveal of the villain, I don't like anything. I think it all is sort of not interesting. And and I say that as someone who thinks that even when I don't love everything Burn is doing, he finds ways to like make things engaging and, you know, break up the frame and do all kinds of whatever. And up until that moment, I'm I'm kind of not that engaged by the art. Then Cole Mac shows up. That's actually a fun design. It's similar to other things that we've seen a little bit of, but I think that's the point. He's trying to create an aesthetic of this. You know, he, he's he, this is a, in some ways a very important issue for us. Snowbird is going to be a character into the future. We need to know her backstory and what her cosmology is. Basically, if she's if she's you know a divine you know uh, being, what divinity from what world, what universe? You know, like if you think they've already established with Thor 
that whatever mythology you're connected to means a treasure trove of characters to draw from. You know, we got to get that out there as soon as we can. So I think all that is really strong uh, around him, like that imagery. But the art leading up to that, I don't think is very interesting. But we could talk about this cover, which also is, you know, it relates pretty strongly to, to the art. Uh, and I mean, it is a striking cover. It's probably actually my favorite cover that we've we've done so far and it it really gets that idea across maybe a little bit better than the issue proper does uh for those who've never seen it it really is just snowbird uh in the middle of this kind of stark white uh background and then it just has the the uh, title snowblind uh written in black lettering underneath uh, what looks like you know kind of like her fallen body uh, in it it's really i mean again i can see that on the newsstand being very striking and really drawing someone's attention yeah, I don't I feel like so far the Aurora cover with all the the things coming at her is my favorite. This I don't care about it. I wouldn't if I wasn't already reading Alpha Flight, I wouldn't pick it up. It's not engaging to me in any way. I take Doug's side on this one. To a certain extent, this cover sort of follows the cover template we've been seeing, which is the solid colored background with a single character as the focus in the foreground. But as Doug said, it's also very stark, and the white background and that elegant lettering on the cover announcing the title of the issue all sort of serves to let you know that you're you're in for a bit of a different experience this issue than what you've come to expect from Alpha Flight. So if I saw this issue on, a, on the stands in a comic book shop and I wasn't already following the book, it would catch my eye because in an almost entirely white cover is not very common for comics. So it would stand out amid all of the vibrantly colored cover images that are surrounding it on the shelves. So I would definitely be drawn to it. I should also say, like at this point in the reading of this series, I don't give a damn about Snowbird. I don't know anything about this character that would make me interested in them. So the fact that this is a Snowbird-centered issue... It kind of, you kind of have to do something. I mean, I guess you could have a, you know, a lot of action on the front cover with her, you know, entangled with this monster. And hey, you know, that always works for me too. But since this is an issue that is specifically meant to, you know, start building this character and trying to show why she can be interesting, I'm glad that they went to something that maybe is a little bit more elegant. I think probably the reflection for me is twofold. One, it, it, to me, uh, feels pretentious when I look at it, such that I'm not going to want to pick it up. And B, I am definitely not a fan of the whiteout. So that's also <laughs> affecting how I feel about it, especially because I do want to know more about, at this point, I want to see Snowbird in action. I feel like she's been in a bunch of issues not doing that much, and I want to see her doing things more so that I you know, sort of know more about her. So I think I would find that, I mean, um, unfortunately, I didn't have the experience of picking this up, not knowing what I was getting into. By the time I got this issue, I knew what was what was going on. I knew all about it, actually. So, um, you know, maybe I would feel differently if I was, you know, a teenager in 1984, and I'm excited about this new comic, and I pick it up, and wow, that's so bold, This all this, you know what I mean? But that wasn't my experience at all. Like, literally, when I bought the very issue I'm holding in my hands, the comic book guys were like, oh, yeah, it's the burn ripoff issue. You getting the ripoff issue? Yeah, there's no art in there. It's great. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's the bias I sort of brought to it. 
Um, and I think for me, it just on a character level, it's just not what I want right now. I want more of the design. Like I said, I love this Colmac design and, and, and I want to see more of that. And, and, you know, mm. also to understand more of that character as well. Though, who knows? Maybe we'd never see this character. You know, maybe this is a one time. Let's throw this villain out there and then they'll go away. I do like that they try to tie it in. And I imagine we're going to learn a little bit more about this to the first issue of Alpha Flight, that there is a connection between this character and Tundra, the monster that we saw in that issue, and that there is there's a suggestion that there's more creatures that could be unearthed like th- this one uh, was. And if that is the case, I would suggest that we stop oil drilling <laughs> in the Canadian North. That <laughs> seems like it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, like, I like that there's at least an attempt here to suggest a larger mythology on display because, you know, we need it. We need, I, I'm, I'm getting a little antsy because I want to see the team together and we haven't seen the team together really at all yet. Uh, and so uh, if they're going to do these little bits and pieces and focus on individual characters, then I want to see at least hints at a bigger story at play. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm wondering, do we want to talk about what happens in this first story a little bit? I think we should discuss the plot a little bit, and then we can move on to our debate about the arguable artistic merit of this <laughs> issue. What did you think of the setup for this issue, Adriana? Well, I have a question for Doug. <laughs> okay. Please. <laughs> Is it standard practice for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to skip written warnings and go straight to confining officers to a cell for minor conduct violations? <laughs> like, I mean, and really minor. She's missed time, they said. And that there's a suggestion that she's maybe, you know, been a little bit difficult. Uh, but then, you know, her explanation is is fairly reasonable, which is that the old boss let her get away with it. It was part of their agreement. And this guy's like, well, that's not my agreement with you. And then he has her imprisoned in a cell. Like I said, uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which was signed in 1982 in Canada. Yeah, we didn't have really a charter or or any equivalent up until that point. But one of them is that you cannot imprison someone uh, without, you know, uh, being charged for a crime. Uh, so yeah, no, this is not usual practice. But you know, uh, these the RCMP they they play by a different rule book. Except they don't. They actually play by the same rule book as everyone else. So yeah, this was really uncool. I did like how that guy Doug again seems like a really decent fella. Wanted to get some blankets to hang up around the cell so at least she'd have a little bit of privacy from the other horrible prisoners that were there. I assume the worst of the worst are in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Jail, right? That sounds right. I don't know. Here's, here's, I mean, thinking about that, I read it as partly being maybe a gender issue that like this guy's being hard on her because she's a woman. Is that me reading my own politics into this? Or do you think that's suggested? Well, I think the character of Doug actually sort of intimates that that is the case. I'm still a little confused about why she needs this cover story job with the RCMP, especially because, but I mean, maybe that's something we'll explore. Now, of course, uh, and we'll talk about this with the other issues. Now that I know Snowbird's backstory, then all the pieces are starting to fit together. But instead of fitting together like a puzzle, it's like they were all thrown off the table because now I'm more confused than ever about why she would try to kind of fit into not only a, a general uh, structure of everyday life, but one that is so rigid as to be a police force. Uh, but hey, I, I guess that's something we can talk about later. I think the suggestion seems to be when she was working for the government, then the government could step in and explain any 
sort of absences and whatever, whatever. Yeah, um, sure. I'm kind of thinking, and Adriana, I wonder what you think about this idea. Um, do you think John Byrne just didn't actually know what she was and what her powers were? That uh, like this confusing development is because he's figuring it out as he goes along. Well, I do know that when Byrne created the Alpha Flight, they were intended to be basically just characters who could go toe-to-toe with the X-Men. He wasn't really thinking long-term, so when Marvel asked him to do the Alpha Flight series, he sort of had to scramble to add some depth to the character. So I'm not sure how far in advance he had planned things, but my guess is not very far. I do have something to say about Snowbird's role as a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but it sort of ties in with her origin, so I don't really want to talk about that until we get to her origin story, which is in either issue 7 or 8, I can't remember, but I will circle back to this point. I'm curious how they did a background check for her to her RCMP. <laughs> uh, I look, there's a lot of questions in my mind about how all that works, but you're right, Liam. It does kind of get solved with, oh, but she was working for the government, so they just made sure that everything worked. But that also begs the question, if she was working for the government, why did she need to work also for the RCMP? It it doesn't. I I legitimately think they he just you know that 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 you're working along and he starts to realize like oh does this work why does she need a cover story and maybe we'll get more information on that later the development of the cover story idea i'm not sure uh I'm i will say that one one issue that i've had so far with the this comic is that the secret identity part of all of the members of alpha flight it seems so kind of nebulous and temporary right because they're so visible and, like, their abilities are already on display to a certain extent. I mean, Puck barely had, you know, I mean, how could you not know who he was, right? And and even with when this character of Snowbird, she breaks through the wall of her prison cell. How are you going to explain that? Well, it's I think it's the most obvious for Northstar. He is a famous public figure who skis very quickly, and then he's also a superhero who flies very quickly. No one puts it together. No one even <laughs> thinks that, well, maybe they're the same guy. One person almost puts it together, his good friend, but we'll leave that for the next issue. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, I, I had a question for y'all about this. As as you said, Doug, there's a Guardian interlude uh, involving Roxxon. Quick note, um, I think at this point, and, and I don't know if, if there's any deep, deep Marvel scholars, I think at this point, Roxxon is itself simply... Uh, as you said, an oil company, anyone watching any Marvel-related properties now will let you know it's sort of in the lore becomes some sort of nefarious organization responsible for the powers of everyone from Cloak and Dagger to Jessica Jones and uh, Luke Cage. So apparently this this idea grows far beyond oil company somehow. How do they do that? I wonder if it happened after the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill and suddenly because everyone knew Exxon is this horrible place or this horrible organization or company that they decided to kind of just run with it. What did you all think of this interlude, though? It's it's sort of like just a hanging thread. It, it felt kind of superfluous to me. What did you guys think? The only thing I liked about it is that I want Guardian to stop just kind of like stressing about whether he deserves to be a superhero. I know that's kind of a defining part of his character for as long as it may or may not last. But um, yeah, see, I do know some things. Um, but I want him to just chill out and be like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this. Um, but I feel like they're as soon as that happens, uh, it's going to be undercut. 
Yeah, I felt the same way. And I don't think it ever gets addressed in issue seven or eight. I think that's fair. Um, I, 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 it's fine, and I know we'll get to it eventually. And and this is maybe something that is exciting for people. Like, ooh, what could the card be? <laughs> um, but it it did feel kind of unnecessary. I don't know. I don't know about it. Uh, but I like. I, I think you're right that seeing him finally have some fun with being able to fly and shoot lasers might be you know cool. Um, and then we, you know we're about to move into this uh, much contested uh, whiteout area. But just before that, we get some dialogue between Snowbird and Kolomok that does exactly what what you were suggesting, Doug, which is connect uh, Kolomok to uh, Tundra and to a a certain mythology. And and I got to be honest here, um, I'm immediately confused. Like, and I think that's fine. I don't know that they need to describe everything that's happening yet. But if if they're at odds, Tundra and Kolomog, wh- what side is Snowbird? Is there just like is this sort of like a there's a multi front war where like the the only the only people the great beasts hate more than each other is Snowbird or or what? Like I just I don't know. What did you all think of that that little chunk of information before we jumped into the whiteout section? I kind of feel like we're still in the beginning stages of it, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it isn't going to be elaborated uh, on to any great extent. So I, I have trouble commenting on it. Like I said, I like the idea of the bigger mythology being hinted at, but like yourself, I was kind of confused about, oh, this guy hates Tundra, so he must be a good guy? Oh, no, he hates Nelvana, who, of course, is part of uh, Snowbird, so is he a bad guy? And it's just like, well, no, let's just dump a mountain on him and then get some oil guys to fill it up with concrete. <laughs> Which I mean, I'm I'm glad to know concrete is all we need to defeat the old old ones. That's always what I've been hoping for. I'm also unsure, and this will be good later if we have someone on who might know. Is this representative? How representative of this of an existing set of beliefs and practices in the real world? I have no idea. That's what I was wondering. I I've done some very very basic research on this, and my from what I have worked out and again it's it's very limited is that this does not come from anything legitimate he's just making this up i think he might just be making it up oh man that's i mean i mean this is a theme and 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 we've already talked about doing an episode where we talk about the the things we appreciate and the things we don't about john Byrne. but i'm just going to call my shot ahead of time uh making up mythology representing a group of people who are not getting the the privileges they deserve and who were basically the victims of genocide that bums me out i'm not a fan of that i'm not into making that that kind of stuff up and that was my anxiety reading it is going like this feels more like burn than than a community of beliefs and so i don't know i don't know what to make of that i'm still a little bummed that the character of snowbird is not inuit or inu uh but instead is just a blonde white woman right yeah if the, if the indigenous deities of Canada could make a child, they would definitely make a, a blonde woman. That's what they would, with with elf eyes, though. So I guess that's <laughs> something. Um, let's talk about the the thing, the thing itself, the whiteout. I've already expressed I'm not a big fan of it. What do y'all, what do y'all really think? Let's dig in on it. All right. I have a lot to say. Do you mind if I go off? No, do it. Do everything you need to. So just to start, I'm going to steer things into a bit of unorthodox territory here for a moment. <laughs> so I kind of like to think that Snowblind is to 1980s superhero comics what Derek Jarman's Blue is to film. So 
For those of you listening who may not be familiar with Derek Jarman, he was a filmmaker, an artist, an activist. He was a progenitor of the new queer cinema movement. And he made this film, Blue, which is a series of voiceover monologues set to one static solid blue image. And on paper, it kind of sounds like a tedious stunt, but it's actually this remarkably immersive aural and even visual to a certain degree journey and it challenges notions of what makes a film a film and it's also this deeply moving statement on AIDS and mortality and is very intertextually connected to his other works but Snowblind is not that weird or complex but certainly there are parallels in terms of how these two works are viewed within the context of their respective medium. So Blue is met with a lot of hostility upon release for taking unusual risks and stretching the boundaries of what a film could be. And likewise, Snowblind, though it does have plenty of defenders, is still dismissed by some as a stunt that is lacking in real artistic integrity because of those five infamous pages. You know, that it isn't what a comic book should be and that it ripped off fans who paid for a full comic with full quote-unquote art. Um, But even in terms of function, the two works are very similar. So... You know, rather than being a traditional film with moving images, Blue uses sound to conjure images in the mind's eye, uh, to the extent that the viewer eventually starts mentally projecting those images onto the Blue screen. And this is very similar to the way uh, the letterer uses onomatopoeia in Snowblind, and the way that Byrne uses the shape and the layout of the panels to suggest things. It generates the same effect. You might not be seeing an image, but the representation of sound and movement conjures an image in your mind, and you mentally complete the image that is only suggested on the page. It's an artistic choice that demands more of the reader and requires us to be more actively engaged, and that might not be what readers of Alpha Flight were expecting when they bought issue number six, but nevertheless, it is a very valid storytelling device, and Ultimately, to me, the question of whether Byrne was just taking the piss with Snowblind or earnestly trying to push the boundaries of the medium is immaterial to me. Firstly, because it's, it's not an either-or scenario. Both could be true simultaneously. But also because if the end result works and is effective, which I think it does and it is, then it doesn't really matter to me whether Byrne was pulling a fast one because it's still functional and successful in what it's getting across. If you look very closely at what Byrne is doing, you know, on on the first page of of whiteness, the panels slant downwards as Snowbird transforms into a bear, sort of creating the illusion of her slouching down onto all fours. He uses stacked panels to suggest stumbling, her stumbling through the forest. Um, I just think there's a lot of really creative things going on on the page that get overlooked because people just see all of that whiteness and they completely dismiss it without really engaging and taking a closer look. I think that the idea, you're making two points, which is that people shouldn't dismiss it because it works. And for me, I'm like, sure, people shouldn't dismiss it if it works, but it doesn't work. I don't think, I literally, I think it doesn't actually conjure things the way that you're describing. It doesn't work for me. Most of it, I don't think is clear exactly what's happening. And it doesn't accomplish something that like Blue, do, you know, does, which is 
tell a story in an effective way to accomplish something. I think what I what I think would be most effective in this issue is not that that we could get more about the character by seeing the character doing things. And so for me, it, you know, maybe it's an, I, I, I could be less cynical and say that it's a fun experiment. And in that sense, it's like, yeah, cool. It's a fun experiment, but I don't, it doesn't have any effect for me or impact whatsoever. And that's after years of looking at it. I just think, you know, the, I think the first example, I, I totally agree. I, you know, you get the feeling that she's going down into a bear. Yeah, I get that. The uh, stacked panels where it's like she's stumbling, sure. I think for me, everything after the stacked panels, so that is three and a half pages, is a waste. Nothing actually is effective until the white goes away and I see the rocks falling. I, I, I do think that two-page spread, once it opens up and once the avalanche starts, is really more effective because of what has come before it. Oh, so, yeah. I, mean, I do think that in terms of building to something, especially that, that one, you know, image where it's just the text saying rumble. Um, I do think that that works a lot better because of the setup. I, I feel like my opinion on this is kind of in the middle, which is that I think that I do think that Burns intention and not that his intention is what matters in terms of whether this is, you know, effective art or not, but I do think his intention was to kind of push the boundaries a little bit and to do something different and interesting. But I do think he was thinking of it more from a graphic design point of view rather than letting it serve the story that he's trying to tell. Because frankly, the story is not really much of a story. It's just uh, a monster fighting our superhero. And I wish that there was more of a struggle on display and where some of the dialogue could carry kind of uh, more of the drama of what's going on. It's just not very dramatic. Though I do have to say that I agree with Adriana that I did kind of imagine uh, some of the things that were happening through the dialogue. And, and you know, you could see that in a way uh, that it pushes your imagination a little more than your average comic book would. So we have all, we have, we, we have the spectrum of perspectives on it. I mean, I don't actually, I, I, I think it's unfair for people to completely write it off. I think you're probably right that it is intentional and all of those things. Uh, is it possible that it was also helpful for him for his schedule? Yeah, sure. But I don't get to know that. So I think I think suggesting that it is actually unfair. It makes me laugh, but whatever. Um, but I just don't. I just think, again, up until a point, I think it's effective. Maybe if it was shorter, then I would feel better about it. But by the time I get to the spread, that's ju- the two-page spread just before the avalanche, I'm checked out. Like I'm like looking at it going, well, yeah, I mean, I basically know what's happening here, but it's not as effective as some of the stuff at the beginning where, you know, I'm getting a sense of motion um, with the way he's doing the panels and stuff. It, it just doesn't, it's just not effective for me. Um, And so then I, I, you know, it's still fun and I don't, you know, I don't think it's fair that people are still angry about it, which uh, I mean, we, you know, having posted art from alpha flight i know people who still get emotional like they're still like ah oh, that that issue and i'm like uh i think that's a little excessive but i don't think it's effect it, it's not for me as a reader it's not effective and i don't have the same effect of uh, the same uh, impact of it i always applaud a big swing especially when it doesn't hurt anything i mean Thank this does you, not Doug. damage the property in any way and if some kid 
felt like he wasn't getting as much value out of this issue. Well, that's that's a shame, but I don't think it's it's crippling to the uh, the property or or going to keep people from buying the next issue necessarily. You know, I think it's it's an interesting one and done. It's curious, and the fact that we're discussing it to such a great extent would suggest that at the very least, it uh, it spurred a lot of uh, interesting dialogue. I think that's very true. Hey, let's talk about this backup story. So we've got another one of these uh, origin Johns uh, at the end, uh, this time dealing with Michael Tuyungman. Um, let's start with what did y'all uh, think of the way this was drawn? What did you think about how it looked? Well, I think Burn. so just that opening page where Shaman is sort of sitting on the rock contemplating existence, I think, I think Byrne captures the Canadian wilderness very well. It's interesting that he's, you know, Banff, Alberta is a very, it's a very popular tourist destination. You know, those mountains are a kind of the notable feature about it. I imagine there's a lot of photo reference that was available to him for this sort of thing. But yeah, I think he does capture that. Uh, I I think he captures the uh, the aura of that nature very, very well. I feel complicated feelings about the use of Banff in this case, simply because Banff is a national park. The indigenous relation to national parks in Canada is very complex because of the way that they were sort of erased from those areas. I don't know if that's an intentional suggestion here, but it is something that I was thinking about while reading it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like that this character of shaman, I'm still, I'm still feel a little iffy. I, I know we discussed it at length last, last uh, episode, but it, it, I still feel iffy about the presentation of him yeah. because it does fall into so many, cliches and stereotypes but i i do also feel that there's at least a legitimate affection that that burn has for this character uh and i don't know if that's necessarily going to carry over some of the bumps and valleys that we're going to encounter with him but i do i do kind of like how he looks in this backup story you know grizzled (laughs) yeah i think this is an area where i i have to just go along for the ride until we can find a guest who can give us a little bit of insight because my vibe on it is like, this might not be cool. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, like the, the, I don't know. Just, just everything about shaman. It's, I I get real torn about it too, because I actually think the character is kind of interesting in some ways, but it's just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. Anyways, I, I, uh, for me, I love those op- that opening page. I think it's really great. I kind of enjoy, though I think it's creepy. I don't know what to make of the idea that his grandfather visits him from a, his boiled skull. That kind of was weird. <laughs> but I liked, I liked the the art of the of his sort of apparition, like the way he looked in those opening scenes. Um, and I actually really liked the second to last page where we got the sense of him on sort of like a training montage you know like if this was a movie that sure. would be a training montage because it kind of reminded me like something we said before which is that burn is pretty good at giving this sense of motion you know you get an idea of like what he's doing um but again i mean it, it's it's interesting his he has a real mix where we open up with this really impressive background that i think you know is one of the more beautiful things he's been able to do. And then some of these other ones, it, you know, it, it, there's not as much there. And, and 
I think that's fine. I think it's effective in some ways, but uh, you know, it, it's 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 an interesting style that I think I'm getting used to again because I hadn't really noticed before. I hadn't really paid attention. Uh, what did you guys think of this story? I mean, like I said, the the boiled skull is not my favorite. I don't know what to make of that. But overall, what do you think is this of this as sort of the next step in 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 our understanding of shaman's backstory? I uh, I like. I actually am surprised at how much I liked it, considering how iffy I am, or not iffy, that's the wrong word, how mixed I I feel about this character and how it's presented. I think part of it is that I know that the medicine bag in indigenous cultures are is very important. As a symbol, it's incredibly important. So the fact that it's based around this sort of character who has really lost his way and really doesn't know what to to do with the rest of his life. And his grandfather is basically saying, look, you need to get in touch with your heritage, with your roots. And when that happens, you'll be able to reach into this bag and pull out these pine needles. And that will be the symbol of you kind of making that journey and completing that journey. I think it's done very effectively considering how short this segment is and how short this this origin story is um i mean it's it, again it's i don't think it's reflective necessarily of real indigenous beliefs but i in terms of a character going through a journey in just a couple of pages i think it's pretty effective so alpha flight volume one uh issue number seven came out in february 1984 written penciled and covered by john byrne uh what happens in this issue doug The, uh, the main story is called The Importance of Being Deadly. Uh, so Northstar, uh, our favorite character, has taken his sister Aurora to a psychiatrist to try and unlock her split personality uh, disorder. Uh, but the doctor is more concerned that uh, Jean-Marie is making herself seem frumpy instead of the beautiful woman that she has the, the capacity of being. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. After uh, Aurora almost has her purse snatched, she suddenly switches back into her Aurora personality and beats the hell out of the snatcher. Uh, but he's released from custody, uh, from police custody almost immediately because he works for the local mob boss, St. Ives, uh, also known as – what's he also known as, Liam? Deadly Earnest. <laughs> it's because he's so sincere. <laughs> so the pair go to visit North Star's friend, who we really are going to talk about, Raymond Belmont, whose restaurant is being squeezed out by St. Ives. Uh, he entertains asking our two heroes for help, uh, but much to the chagrin of his recently discovered daughter, Dan- Danielle, uh, before St. Ives' men burst in, grab Belmont and Aurora. Belmont refuses to sell his restaurant, prompting St. Ives to touch his face, which kills him, and we'll uh, have that explained in the next issue. He takes Aurora with him, mistaking her for Danielle, while Northstar swears revenge for the killing of his quote unquote good friend thanks doug there's a lot to talk about here i think uh but let's start with just a general question about the art what do we think about the art of this issue well correct me if i'm wrong but i believe this is the only cover so far other than issue number three where we have a detailed background so that really stood out to me uh and it's also the second instance of a cover depicting something that actually happens within the issue the other oh, being, that's right <laughs> the other being issue number two i think which is the cover where Marina is gasping in horror as her transformation into the creature of the Black Lagoon is complete. I like this cover mostly because, um, again, it has a much more detailed background than what we've seen previously. I mean, I'm not, I'm not so impressed by the background. It is just a building, and then just you know. I didn't say it was an amazing <laughs> background. Just that it it warranted uh, some attention for being more detailed. 
I like the cover. It's not doing anything particularly interesting in terms of like the action that's on display, but I do love how Aurora looks on it. Even the fact that her her like blouse is undone or or at least it's open. Uh, I mean, it just makes her look all the more intimidating to kind of everything around her. I appreciate the backgrounds of the co- cover. It's not the most dynamic, I think, or interesting of some of them, but I do think uh, the fact that she's well, she's not quite. Jean Marie in this outfit, obviously, since it's like almost open, but but the, you know that's sort of the association of the clothes. Like there is some like question there of like, oh, okay, like what exactly is going on with Aurora? I will say one of the things I find confusing in the comic as a whole is I actually think he hasn't, on a design level, figured out uh, Northstar's hair. I think he has trouble with Northstar's hair. It grows, it shrinks, it changes shape, <laughs> and the cover, it's almost an entirely different haircut. It, I, I just think that's an interesting side note. It doesn't bother me, bother me, but it's something I notice every once in a while where I'm like, oh, it looks kind of different there, actually. His hair is as mercurial as he is. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> uh, I gotta say... The, it changes with his mood. <laughs> it it actually feels like it does, which I guess is just like a, a fun comic book art thing, but I don't know. Anyways, um, I want to say about the art, and then I want to hear what y'all think. This issue, at least this part of the issue, has a lot less of some of his more interesting moves, like big... Um, you know, full page uh, things or breaking the the frames or any of that. Um, there's not a lot of those things going on, and yet I really enjoy the art in this issue. I actually think um, that there's a certain amount of attention to detail. There's certain small flares here and there I oh, really yes. appreciate. And even though there's no huge things, there's a few moments that I find to be really engaging, one of which when we first see Deadly Ernest's face and he's taking his glove off, that's actually kind of upsetting. Like, who is that man and what is he doing? <laughs> and then after uh, Ro- Raymond <laughs> Belmond, <laughs> Jesus. Raymond Belmond. After he passes away, there's a shot of him on the ground that's a close-up of his face with uh, North Star and his daughter in the background. That is an intense panel. That is a panel that, as a kid, I would have been like, "Whoa!" You know, sure. like you know, something's going on there. And so, honestly, again, this isn't his most innovative issue that we've looked at so far. But this is the sort of thing that, when I was a kid, I just like it. It just it. I look at this. And at some weird level, this feels like comic books to me. Like, like, oh, comic. This is comics. You know, I don't, I don't know. Something about it. I don't know. It's, it's hard to sh- describe. What did y'all think of the art in this issue beyond the cover? I, I just, I'm just gonna. I don't have a lot to say about the art, but I will reiterate what you kind of said, Liam, which is that I like the detail of the street scenes in particular. Uh, I think he. I don't know if he used a lot of photo reference, but you know, showing Mus- Montreal as this bustling city. I think he does a really good job of of making it look sort of immense um, and that there's a lot of kind of little details in the background that I really liked uh, seeing. Um, but um, but I mean, I honestly, I don't uh, – the only other thing that this doesn't only kind of tangentially relates to the art. I like how we're kind of going from something very mystical and spiritual with the monster that Snowbird fought in the last issue. And now we're back to something street level about a mob boss trying to squeeze out a restaurant, but it also has kind of these supernatural elements. I, I just like that. Just like I like the, uh, the puck issue that we talked about on the last episode where, you know, the, the thematically it's, it doesn't go grand in terms of what it's, it's trying to do. It's a little bit more compressed, but I, I like, I like that kind of contained story. 
I agree with both of you. I really, really like the interiors on this issue. And, you know, as Liam said, Byrne wasn't really doing anything super innovative here, but what he does do is very effective. Like he does a great job of conveying a specific sense of place. Just the scenes where North Star and Aurora are on the streets of Montreal are are very uh, evocative. Yeah, I like that. I think there's an energy to them and it feels like a real some the 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 reason I harp on the background thing is that in some issues it's felt like the lack of background takes away the sense of place. And in this issue, though there are a few panels where there is no background, there's just color for highlight, there's still a sense of place the whole issue. We're we are somewhere. We are in a place, and I believe it and I feel it, and I and I just appreciate that. Um what do we think of this story? I mean, I don't know. There's so many weird things to talk about. I don't know if we start with, uh, I don't know if you guys want to start with. Uh, like, let's start with Raymond okay. Belmont because okay. this is the character that I think deserves a lot of attention because of his importance for what is going to, what what we're probably going to talk about a lot going forward. And I do think Adriana should be the one who starts this conversation. <laughs> All right. So, so basically, there is a lot of foreshadowing in this issue, maybe retroactive foreshadowing, but foreshadowing nonetheless. Fairly early on in the issue, North Star and Aurora are walking the streets of Montreal, uh, and he starts to tell her about an old friend of his who happens to live on that street. And then, of course, later in the issue, we meet this gentleman that North Star mentions, uh, Raymond. <laughs> How do you say his name? Belmont. Well, that's his, that's his surname. Oh, it's Raymond Belmont. I'm not going to do the French. So So we meet Raymond uh, and his, his interactions with the siblings are loaded with subtext. Oh yes. He even has a daughter from his life before he came out essentially, uh, or so it is implied. And Jean Jean Paul, when he discovers his daughter, he's like blown away. He's like, what? I mean, he all but says that I thought that's impossible. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's written all over his face, but even hinted in the dialogue. And, you know, so this is the sort of thing I'd read as a teenager and feel positively giddy about, um, you know, because I had become adept at reading between the lines. Uh, and this was a little more obviously coded. I would say coded to a point. The the final, uh, you know, right after uh, Belmont is murdered and North Star is just left standing there and stewing and filled with anger. I mean, his dialogue is... So I'm just going to read it because, I mean, it's hard to even call it subtext at this point. Until North Star found Aurora, Raymond Belmont had been the most important person in his life. More than a father, much more than a friend. He had found Jean-Paul scarcely more than a boy, alone and frightened. Frightened of what he thought he was and what he feared he might become. And Raymond had led him out of that dark fear into the bright, clear light of self-acceptance, teaching him not to fear his mutant powers or any other thing. I mean, it's I can see why people say that it was hinted at well before the reveal uh, about North Stars. I mean, we've been dancing around it. His sexuality, that feels like a a clear statement. He takes it just far enough without actually spelling out what is being alluded to. And I I don't think... He could have been explicit about it. I think that th- it, it would be it would be possible for a young person who's unaware at this time uh, what the world is like to miss it. But it would be difficult for anyone who was aware that uh, there is a variety of sexualities that people might have that 
it would be hard to you know what I mean like it's it's it to me it is very much coded in that I don't know that your average um heterosexual child who is who is at, you know in 1984 isolated in some way from having to ask those questions or having to um, uh, interact with people who are different than they are, I think they could miss it still. I think they might be wondering like, man, I wonder what else is going on with uh, with North Star. But I don't I don't think anyone who has that experience could miss it. I think I think your I think your perspective is absolutely right, Liam, which is that it's not like you're being intentionally obtuse by missing it. It's not that clear. And since the mutant um the mutant category uh, or the mutant powers or the people who have mutants – the people who are mutants, I should say, in Marvel Comics have always been used as, you know, to speak for issues of race and sexuality in some, you know, coded capacity anyway. People can still read that last monologue that North Star has about being, you know, it, it's just about someone feeling different and looking for someone who accepts them. But I'm also thinking back to, back to a moment where uh, when Belmont first meets Jean-Marie – he says, um, may I say how delighted I am that Mother Nature so graciously imparted Jean-Paul's features to a woman where handsome may become beautiful. Again, calling a friend of his handsome isn't this like blatant sexual thing. But I think when you pile all of these things together, at the very least, you know, their, their friendship is supposed to suggest something that if you were a, an adult who was aware of that kind of sexual spectrum that you were mentioning, Liam, it would be hard to deny it. Yeah. I'm not sure what else to say about this. I want to say that, like, and because of this, we can, you know, put a gold star on John Byrne, but I think... Uh, oh, I mean, I, there, there is something kind of not so pleasant, which is the suggestion that this man... You know, he said he was what North Star said he was barely more than a child. the The suggestion is that um, Belmont is is an older gentleman anyway in this, even though he isn't presented as like aged, like gray haired or anything like that. But he is supposed to be a bit older. I think there's some perhaps uh, potentially unpleasant suggestions in what he's trying to put there. He doesn't. We never have to know one way or the other yeah, because exactly. And and honestly. As much as I appreciate that there's something going on here and some acknowledgement of the diversity of human experience, I have to deal with the fact that, A, it's right after the Jean-Marie to Aurora transformation and the conversation with the uh, psychologist before that, all of which is very offensive. <laughs> like, you know, the, there's a thing, there's a part, uh, f- for those of you who haven't read the issue, where um, the, the doctor expresses his concern as well that... <laughs> Um, uh, the Jean Marie version of Aurora is just not very attractive. Like that's part of the what's going on here, and, and you know, I think the treatment of this particular mental illness is only going to get worse as we go on. And um, this issue, where I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's very common for folks to um go through experiences like this, and I'm just ignorant of it. But I just felt like. Everything leading up to the introduction of Raymond uh, made me actually very uncomfortable. And then the switch with him suddenly changed kind of for me the experience of the book. What do you all think about that that first section and, and the way we're treating Aurora as a character? Let's go to let's go to Adriana on this one. What do you think, Adriana? Yes, I want to hear what Adriana has to say on this one. I mean, yeah, I, I agree that it's maybe not the most sensitive depiction of someone struggling with mental illness. But... <laughs> To be perfectly honest, 
I found that whole exchange with the the psychologist and sort of and Aurora's appearance to be too ridiculous to be offensive. And maybe that's not. Maybe I should be more more critical of, of stuff like that. But it, it's just it's tough for me to see it as anything other than an accent, uh, another burnest eccentricity. It is kind of jarring when it's juxtaposed with the the gay subtext and how that is handled because it does seem to have a bit more thought and care put into it. Can I just say how refreshing it is to read this issue? And because it's all in French that has been translated to English right from the start that you don't have to have them speaking broken English or no, 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 mon ami for the entire issue. So you can just get, I mean, you know, North Star is still a bit of a dick that's kind of built into his character, but it's such, it's so much easier to read without having that kind of little extra barrier with this ridiculous, exaggerated accent that Byrne has put on these characters so far. I, by the way, just the other thing with that, Liam, aside from the stupid thing that's, that the psychiatrist said about her, you know, hey, she should, you know, take her glasses off and, and look all hot. Uh, the very fact that after her meeting, he calls uh, Jean-Paul into the room so they can have a discussion about his sister. and Right? right. I mean, it's, it's like something out of Mad Men or something, right? I mean, it's so it's so... You know, it's just like let's let's let the men talk about what's actually happening here. It it is again, I do think it is representative of a mindset, but it's also maybe representative of a time period. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh and I I think there's some more to say actually about um the way that he's developing North Star as a character, but I think we have to move on uh in order to get to what I think is going on here. Um we'd have to go on to the next issue. I I want to before we do that take an opportunity to say was there anything else that y'all found particularly interesting here um for me personally i I really you know we meet this character who's so important to north star and i get that it's you know narratively very useful to have this sort of big event for us to move forward and understand north star's desire for revenge but uh but i would have liked to spend a little more time with with our guy i i i could have seen that him showing up in an earlier, you know what I mean? Like having him be a character for a few issues before we get to killing him off. But you know, whatever. Do we, do we ever, is this relationship ever explored to your knowledge? Like, do they ever go into a flashback in any, any other alpha flight or elsewhere where it, it, you know, that we learn that he has been, was cared for by this guy and show, shown to accept his mutant powers, that sort of thing. He appears briefly in flashback a few times, but nothing more than that. Well, that's that is idiotic. <laughs> um, so that 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 was one thing I wanted to mention before we we do it. And and there's of course in this issue there's also some origin stuff and and uh, un- unconnected interlude. It's called. I I I think I'd I'd like to skip that stuff and go to the next issue. But I want to pause and see if there's anything else you all want to say because I want to wrap this story up before we do those other things. I understand that we got to talk about this the. Uh, the interlude isn't really important. It's just a character, Alec sure, Dorn, sure. who is a member of Gamma Flight. He's approached by a woman named Delphine Courtney, and she gives him an offer that we don't know what it is, but I guess we'll connect to later. But we got to talk about the Snowbird stuff. That it's it's probably the most interesting thing that we're going to talk about, aside from the the subtext in that issue. It is so goddamn weird. <laughs> Snowbird's origin is basically an archaeologist unleashes the old gods. They take the form of a beautiful, fair-skinned blonde woman who wants to sleep with him. I mean, I think there's more to it than that, but that's all I remember about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
this guy, this archaeologist, digs up um, like a, a silver a headband. He puts it on. It makes these gods come to him. Three of them, not just uh, Nelvana, but uh, Hodiak and Turok the Shaper. They say a bunch of stuff that he doesn't understand. He's very confused. And then basically Nelvana's like, we need to knock boots. And he's like, huh? And she's like, let's get to it. And then she has sex with him for nine years. And then he comes out of like the stupor or whatever, confused, discovers that nine years has passed and goes insane, like literally insane. And uh, then Shaman shows up to help deliver the baby. And it's it's Snowbird. It's really weird. It's very weird. I will say, okay, the, you know, since we usually start talking about that, the art, I continue to like Burns' designs of these divine figures uh, if they weren't so white. And mm. that's the only thing that kind of bums me out about it is this idea that these are the uh, uh, the indigenous deities of this area, but of course, because they're deities, they are white people. And uh, you know, I'm not stoked on that. But if you can look past that, the design of their outfits and what they look like, the sort of way that they're kind of being surrounded by these cosmic forces, and we see some of that in the very confusing scenes where through magics, uh, Michael two young men uh, delivers snowbird into our plane of existence. Uh, we see some more of that art and, and I like that stuff a lot. That's the stuff I, that, that is probably, yeah, of this issue. That's the, th- I mean, it, it gets really strange, but that's what I really like about it. When, she, when uh, Nirvana is giving birth, I think it's the most interesting visual part of this uh, kind of uh, secondary story. Since we're talking Snowbird Origins, I think this is a good opportunity to discuss a previous iteration of Snowbird um, Mm. that I sort of alluded to earlier when we were talking about the purpose of her being a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So while John Byrne was a student at the Alberta College of Art and Design in the early 70s, he wrote and illustrated a comic for the school's newspaper called Gay Guy. Uh And... It followed the adventures of Gaylord Legee, who was hairstylist by day and crime-busting gay guy by night. And his super ability was essentially just being extremely effeminate and extremely gay. Oh, and he also had medium awareness, so he knew that he was in a comic strip. Oh. And there were a lot of gags around that, uh, which is actually fairly ahead of its time. Um, but I bring it up because one of the comic's villains was an anti-fur trade activist called Snowbird. And she was also a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So I think Byrne just recycled elements of that character for the snowbird we see in Alpha Flight. And so I think the fact that she is a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police may just be the fact that he, he liked that aspect of the earlier snowbird and just wanted to include it in her character in this comic. It's nice to know that it came out of something horribly offensive. Oh, man. (laughs) Let's go to the last uh, issue, Liam. Issue number uh, eight, volume one, from March 1984. Again, uh, written, penciled, and cover by John Byrne. Let's do it. The uh, primary story here is Cold Hands, Cold Heart. Uh, It starts with Northstar very upset because of the death of his uh, good friend. And he flies to Deadly Ernest's castle to retrieve his sister, who, of course, was kidnapped at the end of the previous issue. He's shocked to discover that they are chatting happily, uh, distracting him long enough to get knocked out by one of uh, St. Ives, a.k.a. Deadly Ernest's goons. Deadly Ernest tells her 
tells um, Aurora the story of how he received the power to kill with his touch, which involved him almost dying due to a mustard gas attack in World War One, only for him to reject the Grim Reaper when she came for him. Uh, and so apparently because all you need to do is be like, I'm not going with you. And they're like, okay, I guess you'll be healed, but also you'll kill someone by touching them. Uh, Northstar uh, comes to only to be confronted by a sword-carrying superhero named Nemesis. This is the first appearance by uh, her, and she accompanies him to a deadly earnest dining room, surprising everyone by shrugging off his death touch after he grabs her face before slicing him to pieces with her <laughs> really crazy sword. Uh, they return to uh, Danielle, remember Danielle being uh, Raymond Belmont's daughter, only for Aurora to reveal that she was in cahoots with Ernest the whole time. Uh, Danielle's arrested, and Aurora and Northstar head off, only for Northstar to insult his sister by suggesting that she may have slept with Ernest, uh, since she uh, previously he discovered that she slept with Sasquatch, and he says, hey, I guess you'll just sleep with anyone, and that makes her very upset, and reasonably so, and she breaks off the partnership. They are no longer a superhero team within the superhero team of Alpha Flight, and that is all. So, um, I, I, when we're talking, we're, there's a lot here, <laughs> again, but let me just say, um, I found the art of this cover not great. Enough so that I assumed someone else had done it and it wasn't a John Byrne cover, which maybe is taking too high stock of John Byrne. It, does Deadly Ernest, Deadly Ernest has, not only is he wearing gloves to keep people from dying from his touch, he has like giant hands too, does he? He's just weirdly proportioned. He's a huge dude. He looks like the thing, but not orange. It's weird. The cover of this issue reminded me of like a, the cover of like those tawdry pulpy novels from the 50s i was thinking like those romance comics from the 50s too right yes that's actually much more a much more apt comparison so the surprised look on north star's face she's like oh my gosh and she she has this concerned look it's like dude it's just your sister she's just having her entire head caressed by a man with a yellow glove <laughs> what's the big deal I think this cover is supposed to be a bit of misdirection. Yeah. Because with that subtitle of betrayal and and the the scene playing out, it it sort of makes you think that Jean Marie is doing something shady and Northstar has caught her in the act. And that's true, but there's a twist. I mean, I I feel like when with the cover's kind of romantic suggestion. Uh, and the way that the scenes sort of play out of her being very friendly with Ernest, I think that when Northstar accuses her of seducing Ernest, it feels like Byrne thinks that's what you're thinking, and Northstar is like a stand-in for you, only... I was never thinking that. Like, not when I was a kid, not now, wasn't on my list of, of options. You know, if only for time. Like, how long has this been? How much time did she have? Like, I don't understand how that's even on the table for him or for us. But, but yeah, he can fly. Um, they drove to his castle. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a weird thing. And, and, and I, uh, I think there's more to say about that too. Um, but just, uh, I wanted to know if how y'all felt about the art of the rest of this issue. I just this cover again, maybe it's a, a choice because it's it is referencing those romance comics to sort of create that feeling. But just visually, I I don't find it very engaging. Um, what do you think of the art of the rest of the issue? I liked it. No, <laughs> I just gonna say um, I like I like once he gets to 
the mansion. I like a lot of the details within the mansion itself, and I do like the look of Nemesis, I have to say. I like that design a lot. I don't know anything about this character. I like the giant wings. I like the Spider-Man-ish eyes. Uh, and I like the sword. I like the magic sword that apparently is so sharp that it can basically cut through space and time. Adriana, what do you think of the art? And and I, I agree with Doug. I like Nemesis. What do you think of Nemesis? Well, I also enjoyed Nemesis, but it makes me curious to what extent, if any, Rob Liefeld was influenced by Nemesis in, in designing Deadpool. But I liked the interior interiors of this issue. Um, between this issue and the previous issue, you, you can kind of see a bit of a definite change in how Byrne is detailing the backgrounds. There just seems to be a lot more detail. I agree. In fact, it was it it sort of stood out to me enough that I I almost thought maybe my copy was less faded. Like it, it in other words, the backgrounds add so much more to the art for me as a reader that I, that I, my brain when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, is this less faded than my other issues? And I thought, no, the art is better. But like my first response was, it felt more dynamic it felt more engaging than some of the other ones uh and maybe that's just my taste but this this felt artistically a lot better for for my taste than some of the other issues i think especially when nemesis slices up uh deadly earnest that particular panel the way that action is kind of represented and it's not only just like the slashing of the sword in all these different directions but the entire panel itself is all being pulled in it it feels dynamic i mean i know it's there's a sword in it and that's not the only reason but it almost has that kind of manga-esque action in it right where it's like everything is paused for all the action to take place it's also kind of a gruesome idea she's slicing this dude to bits not a lot of blood though not hey you know still comic book yeah yeah i guess so um what his fucking sorry, uh, his organs just like slide out of his yeah. corpse. <laughs> I guess it wasn't the nineties yet or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, what do you guys think of the wrap up? This is sort of the wrap up of this of this quick story of of Montreal intrigue. Uh, what what did you, what did you, what did you think, Doug? What did you think of this narrative? I mean, it's strange because just two issues ago we had that puck story, which had not really a similar twist, but similar enough, right? Which is just like the person we thought was a good guy was really a bad guy the whole time, and so this one kind of felt a little more telegraphed because of it. Because this is like, who is this character? She just got introduced. Now we know nothing about her, and then at the and she's the bad guy. It just seems like there had to be an extra person to pay for the crimes that were committed, and that's fine. I mean, it, this isn't uh, this isn't a mystery novel. It, it, it's okay if it's a fairly uh, clean wrap up at the very end. So I was kind of fine with how the plot came together. I'm much more interested to talk about Deadly Earnest because what a strange character this is, and what an odd backstory. I mean, can you do that? I mean, is that a character thing in Marvel? I mean, I know that in the context of Marvel, death is supposed to be. Uh, a woman, or at least a female uh, presenting uh, character, but the idea that that death comes for you, and he's just like, nope, <laughs> that he just refused to die during the war. It's like, what happened to all those other people who died during the war? Why didn't they think of that? I don't. I find it very confusing. I, I, I and I can't think of any, uh, of any. <laughs> 
And you're right, by the way, Liam. He's a monster. I'm looking at these pictures here. He's he just a ridiculous gets, He just looking. gets bigger, too. Uh, and not to spoil anything, but he just gets bigger. Uh, Adriana, what do you think of this backstory for Deadly Earnest? And can you think of any characters that have a similarly... I don't want to call it flimsy, but just sort of like it's just kind of out of no. I I don't know. I don't know how to describe this uh, in comparison to other uh, heroes, <laughs> especially while Doug is openly laughing about it. Well, I'm I'm kind of not clear on what you're asking me. Well, I'm asking one: Do you what did you think of it? And two: Can you think of any other characters that have a similar uh, origin? Because that was what Doug asked us, and I can't think of even one. Well, I'm, I just want not a similar origin, but just the idea that that death is such a uh, tangible character in the Marvel universe that you could barter with them and uh, and basically you know deny your own death in some way. Well, I mean, DC has characters like the Spectre and Neuron. Sure, of course. That are sort of along similar lines, but actually. This, the character of Deadly Earnest reminds me more of the sorts of villains that pop up in the Venture Brothers. Yes, absolutely. He, he is very much of a piece with characters like Wide Whale and uh, Monstroso. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, from my experience with the Venture Brothers, it you know, there's a lot of kind of pastiches that then they've added ridiculous elements onto. Um, like pastiche, especially from like pulp heroes and things like that, and superheroes certainly. But you're right, right? It's just this. It seems just a little, maybe that one step too ridiculous to be taken seriously. Though in the context of the story, right. I think we are supposed to take him somewhat seriously. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can't tell. I can't tell if it's both. It might be both. It might be that he's kind of a ridiculous, like kind of a self-knowing, mocking thing but also a serious character. And I, and I wouldn't put it past Byrne that, that we're supposed to take him on both levels. I, I'm not sure. Also that the one who comes to kill him is named Nemesis. Um, I don't know. The, 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 the whole thing is it's hard to tell how meta it is, that, you know, how knowing it is. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, so we get another one of these um, uh, origin story ones. This one's called Genesis, and it gives us – uh, sort of the way in for for Michael, two young men, and uh, Snowbird uh, into Alpha Flight. Doug, you want to give a quick what happens, and and then get some idea from y'all about what you think about this. Yeah, there's not much that really happens. I, I do we know why uh, James Hudson and Heather go to meet Michael, two uh, young men at the beginning of this episode uh, issue. Sorry, the beginning of the story, I should say. Like they're just just going to see him because Heather had a relationship with him as a kid. When I say relationship, of course, she was a kid and he, she lived next door. So there seems to be this continuing thing, and maybe one of y'all can uh, elaborate for me. He's famous. Yeah, he's he a is, famous doctor. He's famous. and But didn't and, he disappear for 10 years? Yeah, that's what I don't... Well, A, I don't... Unless he wrote a book or he's on TV, how is he so famous? I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't name to you a single surgeon in America, let alone Canada... Who is 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 uh, by name? Who hasn't written a book or is on TV? So I'm I'm just wondering if y'all have any insight as to why he's so famous and, and famous enough that that's why James is like that's why they go see him is because he doesn't believe her. He, he, he in a joking way doesn't believe her that she knows you know Michael two young men like and as you said he's been gone for ten years I don't I don't get it I don't get it. Well, I mean James is also supposed to be. 
a really smart guy, and maybe in the circles that he runs in, he has a little bit more fame. I mean, that, that I think you can at least stretch it that way. Though is the all you're you're forgetting the puck issue. He was famous in the puck issue oh, too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, but that, that was, was famous among other doctors. The setting of a hospital, so of yeah. course. Uh, people within the field would know who he is if he sort of has a a, a good reputation. He's the guy who couldn't cure his wife. Um, <laughs> so, so they go to Jesus. they go to visit him. So it must be common knowledge to at least Heather where he's staying. So maybe he has seen his daughter. Anyway, let's. They go to meet him uh, in Banff, Alberta, where here he was the, in the last issue. They're just going to hang out. Uh, they're just, they're surprised to discover that he has a mysterious young woman with him named uh, Naria. Heather is super suspicious about what's going on with her, especially her weird eyes. So she follows or gets up during the night to see to kind of uh, snoop around. She finds Naria nude out uh, in the woods, sees her change into an owl and eat a frog, which is very traumatic to Heather. They confront Michael the next day, and he admits that Naria is a half goddess metamorph. <laughs> and he also tells them that he is shaman and he's expecting like James to freak out. Uh, but instead James is like, this is great. I have a department for weird people like you. It's called department H. And he immediately invites them into it despite not really knowing anything about uh, snowbird and only knowing very little about shaman. But uh, you know, this is how they, I guess all met up and eventually formed that part of alpha flight. Does this feel for me, this felt very like, almost perfunctory just kind of like a and this is how they met what i don't know i uh, what, what did y'all think of this quick little little origin story it was bad i will say that i don't think this is a well done this seemed like it deserved a lot more space to elaborate on a lot of these different things i mean it really the ending doesn't make any sense at all right i mean all we know about snowbird like even to them is that she you know he he must have seen because it says in the in the part of the issue that he basically gives a Cliff's Notes version of her background, which must have been uh, a god had sex with an archaeologist and I delivered the god's baby. Right? What what is what did he tell them? And and then that was enough to be like, hmm, well, our government agency needs a person like you, twenty year old snowbird who seems to not even be able to communicate properly with human beings. I. I, get, I mean, I made a joke at the very beginning of the issues, like, when they did a background check for the RCMP, what did they find? Apparently, she's been in the woods for... Now, she's aged fast, right? Is that the suggestion here, Liam? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so she's aged up to 20, but, like, how long did it take? Right? I don't know. Her And does she continue to age quickly? I have all these questions, which I guarantee will never be answered. <laughs> <laughs> I think Michael Too Young Man just has so much clout behind his name that he could just tell the RCMP, they're like, hey... I vouch for this chick, and they didn't ask any questions. They just hired her. <laughs> uh, look, the, even the RCMP has to deal with some paperwork. <laughs> but but yeah, but he's famous though. So. Well, maybe Trudeau pulled a few strings, you know. But yeah, this this backup origin story didn't really do much for me either. And I agree with Doug in the sense that the story that it tells, which is kind of the genesis of Alpha Flight, as far as how James and Heather met Michael Two Young Men. I think it would have benefited more from a full issue sort of flashback story rather than this very condensed backup story. I think the combination of these stories, so with the with the main story and then the origin story at the end, it, I the whole structure has left me a little 
unsatisfied as an adult reader because I feel like one or the other is going to be shorter than I want it to be. And the the origin stories that have been a little more interesting, I just would like an issue. I would like an issue of that. I would like just to read a issue that's like, okay, here, we're going to tell you what happened as opposed to putting it on the end. And I think this one for me is just the worst one because it is so quick. And I, and I assume... I mean, maybe that's just what he wanted, but it feels to me like it's so quick, maybe because they were spending more time on the main issue, the main story of the main issue, and so they didn't have as much uh, space at the end. I don't know, but... I mean, I think there's an element to that, Liam. It's interesting. One of the letter columns, I think it might have been in this issue or the issue before, it was a person sort of complaining about these backup stories and being like, when is this going to end? And I think the the answer was, these are going to stop on issue 12. And it was almost just like, yeah, we know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's an interesting way to do an origin, right? In pieces and then bringing it all together with these backup stories. But because of the necessity of them being truncated, I think it does leave them a little unsatisfying. I I would like to see a version of this that had a little bit more meat on its bones that, that didn't come off as being sort of perfunctory and and uh, and and rushed okay well this has been a longer episode i think we should probably wrap up what what do we need is there anything we need to 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 uh it's been too long liam so i gotta do a really quick canadiana a little little moment of canadiana before oh, we finish yeah, up please please do just one thing which is about the name snowbird because, you know, Snowbird, when I think of the word Snowbird, I don't think of a bird up in the Arctic. I think of the song uh, made most famous by Anne Murray in 1969. Her song, Snowbird, uh, was a number two hit on Canada's pop charts, but was number one on the adult contemporary charts in the United States. Uh, and it spent six weeks there. It's, it's probably the song that she is most connected to. Uh, and the thing that's most notable in my household about the song Snowbird is that my late father, it was his least favorite song. He hated the song Snowbird. So uh, I don't know if John Byrne took the name of this character from this song, but I will say that for probably his generation, when they heard that word Snowbird, they're thinking of that Anne-Marie song. That's really interesting. I didn't know anything about that. Okay. uh, Hey, uh, Adriana, where can people find us on the internet? Well, on Twitter, you can find us at FlightStuffPod. And you can drop us a line by email if you're so inclined at flightstuffpodcast at gmail.com. We would love if you would get in contact, follow us on all these various social meds, and, uh, you know, let people know that you enjoy the show and uh, stick with us for some future episodes. You know, uh, uh, whatever place you listen to this podcast, toss us a rating on there. Give us give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Uh, we really appreciate all the all the ratings, but the really the positive ones, uh, especially because algorithms are designed to to crush the small. So <laughs> the more positive we can get. But what Liam is trying to say is give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Please do. We would super appreciate it. And also, let's mention that you can always go over to Cinepunks.com yep. and check out all the latest uh, episodes and past episodes of uh, Alpha Flight. And it has links to where you can subscribe on there as well. Adriana, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, you can follow me at E-A-D-X-B-B. And how about you, Doug? You can find me on Twitter at Doug underscore T-I-L-L-E-Y. And yes, uh, unlike certain publications have said, it's Doug, not Doe. <laughs> and uh, you can just follow Cinepunks uh, at 
c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x don't forget it's an x uh and don't worry about following me on twitter that'd be a waste of your time so liam uh, rules are you stop stop okay uh well unless anyone's anything else thanks for listening uh we we love that you're checking it out and uh hopefully join us here next time uh for issues what issues 9 10 and 11 <laughs> the next <Yeah>. ones <laughs> the next ones <laughs> all right thanks so much <laughs>